Hear God's word from 1 Peter chapter 2. We'll be reading verses 4 through 10. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Thanks be to God for his word. What is a church? You can look around at various attempts of people to put together a church. It takes lots of forms. It takes... The form of small house churches takes the form of small gatherings, takes the form of large productions, what we call the big box churches. There are some churches that hardly have any semblance of the gospel of Jesus Christ in them. Are they a church? There are some that are entirely unimpressive yet are built upon the gospel of Jesus Christ. Are they a church? We're going to look at what the church is at its core in our passage today. Peter makes it clear that the church is built on Jesus Christ and on him alone. And people can build really impressive structures. Peter uses this analogy of building a building. He uses this description of building with stones And if you were to consider maybe the most impressive structure you've ever seen, maybe it's built out of stones, maybe you like the ancient architecture, the cathedrals. Maybe you prefer the modern steel and glass buildings that look like they're sculpted towers. But what we're examining today is the most impressive building ever built in all of human history, the Church of Jesus Christ. It's built by God and it makes all other endeavors of mankind pale in comparison doesn't matter how many products your church can crank out. doesn't matter how many productions they can make. It doesn't matter how social the gatherings are. The foundation must be Jesus Christ and his people built up by God for his glory. So we're going to look at the foundation stone, the cornerstone of the church, by looking at our passage today in, you guessed it, three parts. First of all, Christ, the living stone. This will be a large portion of our time in God's word this morning. That first point, Christ, the living stone. Points two and three. 
We'll pick up the pace a little bit as we look at Christ, the rejected stone, and then a people for his own possession. Christ, the living stone, Christ, the rejected stone, and finally, a people for his own possession. Here we see Christ, the living stone in verses four through seven. Christ is described as a living stone who was rejected by men, but chosen and precious by God. What that means off the bat is that the standards of the world and the standards of God are entirely different because if man reject, men reject him, but God has chosen him and calls him precious or honored, then there are very different standards. God takes this living stone and has laid him in Zion, as Peter quotes in verse 6. Zion is the place of God's dwelling. It's the place where God meets with his people, and Christ is that foundation of where God meets with his people. God is working on a building project. And there is a different building project that the world is endeavoring to build. And we're going to see throughout this that there is the mounting tension and there is a dueling and a competing element to these projects. In fact, they are, in essence, entirely opposed. When you think of a stone, you typically don't think of something that's living. And I think that's why Peter tells us this is a living stone. We think of stones as something that is um, motionless and lifeless, but not in this case. Peter's combining some metaphors here. Christ is the rock-solid foundation, but that does not make him motionless or lifeless. He is a living stone because he has been resurrected from the dead and conquered the enemy. And likewise, he describes his recipients in verse 5 as living stones. Because Christ is the living stone, we too are living stones who are being built up as a spiritual house. That means we also have that same resurrection life that makes Christ the living stone. We too are living in his resurrection. And we too are stones that are being used to be built up into a spiritual building. This spiritual building is specifically a temple. Verse 5 says uh, you're being built up as a spiritual house. Now, there's a repetition going on here that the English can't quite capture. It's you're built into a building. It's that same root. It's this, this being uh, brought together into a structure in that spiritual house where you'll see there's a priesthood and where there are sacrifices. That spiritual house is a temple. This is where people engage with God. And Peter's telling us, you, dear recipients, are being built into that temple of God. We are as were Peter's recipients, those living stones because we have come to Christ by faith as they did. Now, we as a family like to take trips down to a large construction site near our house on a regular basis. Like the crane trucks. We like to see the progress on this massive structure that's going up. And they have piles of material sitting around the the perimeter and the main building going up in the middle. Now, there are some places where there's just a stray block or a stray piece of rebar. A block sitting on the periphery is useless. But if you take that one block, and if you put it in that structure with thousands of other blocks with a design and a function and a purpose, it becomes very useful. It becomes very purposeful. And sure, it doesn't build its own glory. It builds the glory of the designer and of the building. It's not a self-glorifying task, but it is purposeful. 
And it is by God's design. And so it is with all believers. We're not saved to do this Christian life alone. And we're, we're saved to be a part of this spiritual building that God is building. We're, we're saved to be a part of this temple with access to God's presence where God meets with and blesses his people and grows them in holiness together. This place we call the church. There's only one impressive stone in this building. And it's not you and it's not me. There's only one impressive stone, and it's the cornerstone, the foundation stone. It's huge, it's beautiful, it's perfect, and on it is built the rest of the structure. Including, as Paul says in Ephesians, the prophets and the apostles' work built on Christ, the cornerstone. And Peter says, you yourselves are also part of this building, part of this church. And here in this temple, spiritual sacrifices are offered. And it's not because these are worthy priests in and of themselves, but because they have the high priest, Christ, who makes their sacrifices worthy. And so we expect here to find sacrifices, and we're not talking about the blood of bulls and goats. What God has always desired is a heart, faith, surrender, the whole being and mind and the lives of his people. These are spiritual sacrifices. Since the very beginning of his letter, Peter has been painting. You look back at chapter 1, verse 3. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Peter has been painting this picture based on that fact that God has given us new life. And what does that look like? What does it mean to live as a spiritual sacrifice? It's to live out of that new life. It's to be somebody totally transformed by God's work. It's to be to the praise of God the Father for his mercy. It's to endure through life's trials. And it's also love and faith toward Christ, even when we don't yet see him. And it's those five commands that we looked at last week. Set your hope fully. Be holy. Conduct yourself with fear. Love one another and long for the pure spiritual milk. These are how we offer ourselves as sacrifices. These are our spiritual sacrifices. In summary, what that sacrifice means, the spiritual sacrifice that we, the church, offer is a totally transformed heart and mind that is built on that resurrection life of Christ found in the gospel and someone who is being built up by the Spirit into the church. What we sacrifice in this way is the best part of us. The parts that we endeavor to to glorify within us and the parts that we try to build up for our own praise are futile. What we sacrifice for God is the most meaningful because God himself builds it up in Christ by his spirit. And these sacrifices that we bring to God must come by Christ because remember that there's nothing a person, even a believer, can do to present a worthy sacrifice Even when we offer all that we have, what we offer is still tainted by our sin. It's still blemished, still unholy because it comes from a corrupt heart. But we bring those sacrifices through Jesus who washes away our sins and our guilt and purifies our sacrifices and becomes the sacrifice for us that is presented to God who makes our sacrifices acceptable and beautiful to him. So we praise Jesus for taking our unworthiness, our unworthy sacrifices and our own deeds of obedience and sanctifying them in himself and presenting them to God for us. That's part of the benefit of being in the church, is seeing this together and doing this together where Christ has promised to build us up together.
And there's this concept of honor and dishonor that you see woven throughout this passage. And honor was a big deal for them, as, as it is for us. Uh, honor was connected to positive social standing and acceptance. Again, very similar to us. And for those who come to him believing that we receive the honor of Christ. The honor that we receive is, is received by association. It's not because we deserve it. It's because we are associated with the living stone. It's because we are built upon the living stone. It's because the Holy Spirit fills us with that salvation. Now, Peter's recipients, you'll remember, they are living like exiles in Asia Minor, removed from their prior homes, very much in conflict with the views of the world around them. And so honor became hard to come by for Christians. One scholar puts it like this. He says, Peter's recipients were facing a barrage of verbal abuse designed to demean, discredit, and shame the believers as social and moral deviants, endangering the common good. This procedure of social, social shaming was employed as a means of social control with the aim of pressuring the minority community to conform to conventional values and standards of conduct. The world is pressuring these believers who have different standards to conform to their own standards. And so there's this, this barrage, this, these attacks, this abuse. These things that we as the church in America fear and may be beginning to see more and more where we're going to be dishonored. The world does not value what we value. The world is built on something entirely different. And so that's what Peter's recipients were facing. And that's what we too should expect to face more and more. The community of darkness was trying to break into this kingdom of light. And we must remember that when the world shames us, it's a meaningless shame. Because the world's standards of darkness cannot touch those who dwell in the light of Christ. Because the honor of that kingdom of light is reserved for those who believe in Jesus. And the darkness does not understand this light, nor will it stand against it. So we come to Jesus again and again in faith, reminding ourselves of our true identity and our true honor against those in the dark world. And by believing in Christ, we will not be put to shame, Peter tells us. And the honor is for those who believe as we are built up into this beautiful house that gives glory to the foundation, the cornerstone, the designer, to God and to the Son Consider 10-year-old bullies on the playground. They have a standard of morals. They have their way that they operate, but they have an underlying fear and an insecurity and a, a herd mentality that makes them treat other people, anybody who's different, treat them poorly. And they even look at each other without showing it. They look at each other with great skepticism, just trying to be accepted by one another and to build their honor with increased by increased bullying. Now imagine those bullies on the playground and a young family passes by the park where the bullies spend their summer days. And as this family approaches the block, the father sees a few pieces of litter along the roadside and so he picks them up and throws them into the trash bin. The bullies scoff. An elderly man is struggling to get his wheelchair over the separated sidewalk so the daughter lends him a hand. And the bullies laugh. 
The mother sees the boys on the playground and recognizes one of them as the son of the impoverished young widow, so she offers the whole crew homemade banana bread from her purse before the family continues on their way to teach the Sunday school class at church. And the bullies laugh. They laugh and they mock and they ridicule for being soft and for being goody-goodies. And by their own community standards, they are the walking definition of uncool. This is a ridiculous picture. Yet this is how the world treats those who belong to Christ. Their standards are meaningless. Their standards make no sense. And they are based upon their own insecurities and fears. There is something so much greater that we live by. We live and we think and we operate in an entirely different world. Who cares if the bullies call us uncool? It's a compliment that the dwellers of darkness would ridicule those who walk in the light. Let's, let us, in our obedience, be rejected by standards of darkness because we have that better realm of existence, that spiritual house, that holy priesthood with Christ under us and in us and above us and around this fellowship where all those in the building are likewise chosen and precious and honored by the King where it matters. So then the question for you and for me is, Not how much can I keep control of, how much of a bully can I still be and be saved? The question is, how much can I let go of? How much of me can I surrender out of the darkness to the light? What else can God transform in me that I can then offer more of myself to God as a sacrifice? And remember that as a spiritual priesthood and a spiritual house here in the church, you will not ultimately be put to shame. You have received divine, eternal honor through Christ, the living stone who was rejected by men. And so we too are going to face that same rejection from the world. And we should count it an honor because we, like the living stone, are being built up into something so much greater and valuable and lasting. And so let's turn now to that rejected stone because if our cornerstone was rejected, we should not be surprised that we are going to be rejected. So let's look at Christ, the rejected stone here. We find this in the second half of verse 7 and in verse 8. Peter seems to offer his rejected exile readers some comfort because even their living stone has been rejected. He says, but for those who do not believe, setting a contrast here, starting in the second half of verse 7, there's this contrast. Those who do not believe in, in the cornerstone, they have rejected him. And Jesus was indeed killed. Rejected by the Jews and the Romans. The so-called builders of the Jewish tradition rejected Jesus as a blasphemer. The so-called builders of the Gentile government rejected Jesus as an insurrectionist. The heart of all the unbelievers was and continues to be rejection of Jesus. He makes unbelievers uncomfortable. His teachings and his person require unbelievers to do things that they don't want to do. His powerful words and the demands on the lives of followers makes unbelievers squirm with discomfort for fear that they might lose control of their lives. And so those builders killed him. We have to ask, what are these builders building? If Christ, the beautiful cornerstone chosen and precious by God, if he does not fit into this building... 
What is it they're building and how could it be worth building? For some, they were building a system of religious tradition that made them feel like they were doing everything right. Maybe by way of analogy, this is that stone cathedral that's gorgeous yet heartless. For some, they were building an empire where order and peace and comfort contributed to the power plays of the leadership without concern for ultimate truth. Perhaps this is the steel and glass sculpted skyscraper that's really impressive, yet not built on anything true. Whatever it was that these builders were building, it was an utter contrast and conflict with what God was building. Because the cornerstone of light was rejected by the builders of darkness. They weren't even playing the same game. No matter what is being built, there's only one foundation that's worth building upon, and it is Jesus Christ. And to reject him is to build your house on sand. Peter says that these builders stumbled over him. This cornerstone laid there is to be built upon, yet they came upon it and tripped on it. They turned away from the very heart of God. They apostatized away from the gospel of grace into self-made rules. And the cross of Christ was proven indeed to be folly to the Greeks and a stumbling block to the Jews. Jesus is ridiculous to them, and so they rejected him. He's also described as a cause of offense. This is a snare or a temptation to sin. Indeed, who wants to be told that your building project for your glory is vanity? Who wants to be told that your sin is an offense to the holy God who isn't offended by the fact that they were born in sin and need to continually kill sinful thoughts and loves and actions? The gospel of grace offends that mentality that says most people are good. And so therefore the world that does not understand him must disobey him. Jesus and the call to faith must be disbelieved by these builders. Verse 8 says that they disobey the word, and this is that word of the good news of Jesus that we saw in verse 25 of of chapter 1. And this word is the good news that was preached to you, and here they reject this word. They disobey this word. They disbelieve the truth. And it's a tragic sin to reject Jesus. People think it's morally neutral. You can choose your own way. And if I choose to disregard Jesus, then maybe I'll be treated by a different standard. No, there is one standard. There is one truth. And it is a sin to reject Jesus Christ. And their rejection has been destined in verse 8. You see that as they were destined to do. This is that same word in verse 6 of being laid out. It was laid out for them. To reject Christ, just as God had laid the in Zion, the cornerstone. And so in the laying of Christ, for those who reject him, they also, by God's sovereignty, were destined to remain in the death of their sin that they had chosen. As Isaiah 8, quoted in verse 8 here, foretells. The stone that they rejected has become and will be seen as the the cornerstone and the honored stone, no matter their treatment of him. And Christ is the cornerstone, that foundational, crucial stone that is the most important part of the structure. And this structure is not being built by worldly foolishness that will fade, but in God's eternal kingdom of light that will eradicate the kingdom of darkness on the last day. Jesus is given all honor by God, even though the world will shame him. When in reality, 
By real standards, it is the world that will be shamed and put to dishonor. Jesus is the honored cornerstone, the firstborn from among the dead, the living one, the head of the church, the judge of the world, the embodiment of the temple, God's presence, God with us. This is a warning. Peter is writing a warning for his believers mixed with a word of comfort. And the warning is this. If you disbelieve, all that awaits you is dishonor. But if you believe, you have honor coming. You can either be built upon Christ or you can trip over him on your way to building your own building project. What are you building? If you're building anything that Christ must, you must try to fit him into it, then you will very soon find yourself rejecting him as a rejected stone. Jesus is not asking to be fit into the structure of your building. Jesus is an inconvenient demand on your time and energy and your relationships and resources and your heart. And he becomes the foundation that is far more beautiful than what you're trying to do apart from him. If the church that Jesus is building is just an annoyance to you, then reconsider what it is that you're building. Because Jesus is properly and only the foundation stone, the core, the beautiful cornerstone that infuses the rest of the building with honor. Be built on him. Let God build you up on him into the beautiful spiritual building of sacrifice and communion with him. That is the church. Now, let us look at this people for his own possession in verses 9 and 10. As we've said, these two drastically polar ways of existence, one is in Christ and one is stumbling over Christ. In this new life that Peter's been describing since chapter 1, verse 3, here we find a beautiful summary. Jesus will be exalted in all honor and praise. Even if you do not find yourself built in him, he will be raised to honor and glory without you to your own dishonor and shame and disgrace. So if you're, if you're building a building of darkness, be warned. But if you are finding yourself being built up in Christ and you see God graciously growing you upon Christ in the church, be encouraged. There is great honor awaiting you as Christ is honored even now. And as Christ was rejected by the darkness, so you who believe will be rejected in the world. But that does not mean that your acceptance with God in the kingdom of light is negated. It simply is shifting our allegiance from this lesser important project to the greater project. It moves your heart from darkness to light. It changes the way you think about life from the bully mentality to the way of obedience and of life. This is who you are. And Peter calls you a chosen race. That word race, we often think of skin color. That's, that is an unhelpful definition here. A race is speaking of a family and those who are descended from the same source. Like those who were of the family of Abraham, composed Israel. And it foreshadows all those who are in the family of God, who are in Christ. This is a chosen race who have faith in Christ. It's an ancient family of faith built not upon impressive merit, but because of God's loving election for his glory. You are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood. 
Since we're that spiritual house, that temple, this means that we are priests in service of the king. Now, to combine the king and the priesthood was a rarity. Only Melchizedek held both those offices in foreshadowing of Jesus, the prophet, priest, and king. And we are not priests in our own power as if we can access God's throne room of grace on our own. No, we are priests for being in the one true high priest, and our access comes from him and through him. And back at the time of the Reformation, the priests of the Roman Catholic Church used to read the scriptures for the people. The priests of the Roman Catholic Church used to take communion for the people as the priests on behalf of the people. And the reformers said, no, we are all priests. We are a royal priesthood. We have the ability to find the truth of God by the Spirit's help as we read Scripture. And we can receive the sacraments because of Christ's institution and giving them to us. We are a royal priesthood in service to the King. And we can pray to Him, and we can offer our lives as spiritual sacrifices to Him because we are found in Christ. And we are a holy nation. You may remember holy means set apart. This is a a nation that is distinct, like Israel was set apart from the nations, pulled out from slavery in Egypt, given an identity distinct from the world. We're talking about a people that receives its holiness from the one who was set apart. A people who receives holiness from Jesus and whose holiness is given to them. This is a nation that exists in contrast with the world like That family that walked by the bullies on the playground, a totally different way to live built upon Jesus Christ. And we are a people for his own possession. And this is what I really would like for us to drive home today. A people for his own possession means that God is keeping us. Like your most treasured possession that you hold dear. And if you lose it, you hunt until you find it. It's locked up in your safe. Nothing's going to touch it. God is keeping his people. He is going to obtain his people. He has obtained his people. He will continue to obtain his people and possess them and preserve them. That is all wrapped up in this word. A people for his own possession. This is nothing short of supernatural comfort and confidence and security. God has obtained you by the blood of Jesus Christ. God holds you as his possession and no one can snatch you out of his hand and God preserves you. You will be kept and guarded and protected until that day. Like a meticulous building manager keeps an eye on the condition of the bricks and the mortar that holds them together until that day that this house is prepared for its unveiled union with its groom, Jesus. Therefore, when you're being rejected by the world, it simply confirms your purpose and your function within God's house. Your role is to proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light at all times. Like Isaiah 43 says of my chosen people, the people whom I formed for myself, that they might declare my praise. And that's what Peter picks up on. He says, you exist to declare the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into light. Our purpose is to declare his excellencies and to praise him now that he is building us up in Christ. When's the last time someone asked you about your life and you use that as the opportunity to praise the God of your salvation? 
Or when's the last time you praised God with your family or your housemates? When's the last time you actually contributed to the purpose of declaring God's praise? Well, if you're convicted by that list and you feel like you have failed miserably, let me give you at least a little bit of encouragement here. Being here in church, in the spiritual house that God is building, playing your role as a living stone among living stones, we together are doing exactly this, proclaiming the excellencies of God. This whole gospel that we talk about and that we sing about and that we see and that we pray about, and that is preached about here, all this are the excellencies of him who has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. And we proclaim it here. And by being here, you are contributing to that proclamation, a community that exists for the proclamation of this excellent God. And so we gather again and again and again and again so that we can also proclaim his excellencies at home and at work and elsewhere because it is to change us. And so it is seen so clearly here in this church. And it is meant to change us when we go home as well. And as we talk to our co-workers and as we run into people out in the store, we have a beautiful purpose and a beautiful existence now. We don't have a purpose that, a, that, that the bullies have designed. We have something so much better. We don't dwell in darkness. We don't, we're not built on the foundationless world. We have a great calling and purpose to be part of what God is doing, receiving the honor of Christ by association with him. We who were nobodies, dead in darkness, he's transferred to a far better kingdom of his marvelous light. And there we find forgiveness of sins by his blood. There we find hope of resurrection and we come to him and are built upon him. Let the world scoff. Let the world reject us. We have a better home. Peter quotes one final thing as a bit of a recap right at the end here. He says in verse 10, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is hearkening back to the book of Hosea. You know that story. The faithless prostitute Gomer is chased down by the faithful Hosea as an illustration of God who is so endlessly faithful to his people that he chases down his prostitute, faithless people, Israel. And some of the children of Gomer are named No Mercy and Not My People. That's the language Peter's picking up on here. You had no mercy. You were not a people. But then God promises in the book of Hosea, he says, I'm going to take these two children named no mercy and not my children, and they're going to show to you that one day I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness and you shall know the Lord and I will have mercy on no mercy. And I will say to not my people, you are my people. And he shall say, you are my God. That relationship will be reunited, restored. But when and how and where will God show this mercy? How will he turn those who deserve no mercy into those who receive mercy? When will he take those who have dwelt in darkness and have lived in the depths of corruption and are not his people? And when will he make them his people? 
How can we know that this dishonor and disgust and vileness and unfaithfulness will ever be reversed into glory and honor and holiness and righteousness? Peter says, you are it. You are the ones who have been taken from a godless, merciless, purposeless existence and have been made the people of God. You are that chosen people, a holy priesthood, a people for his own possession. You have been called out of darkness and into God's marvelous light. You are the ones who have received mercy and have been made God's people through faith in the living stone. Let's make it our deepest longing now to be built up in him then. No matter what the world thinks, let's be built up into Christ, our cornerstone. Let's pray. We praise you, God, for rescuing people like us. We thank you that you have transferred us out of the kingdom of darkness and you have made us a people for your own possession, that you would go and find us and protect us and keep us to the end. All of this because of Jesus Christ. We pray that we would be those who exalt him, who proclaim his excellencies this day and forevermore. Would we exist in this kingdom of light to your praise. In Jesus' name, amen.